0: Welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel, and there's a hawk, or not a hawk, a crow. I don't know if you can hear that. Yeah, it's, it's crowing away over there. Anyways, uh, maybe that's one of Joe's friends. So, uh, <laughs> welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. I don't know if I said that already. I am back from Gen Con. I have a bunch of calls because, of course, I was slacking. I did record some other content, too, that I just decided I didn't like, so I didn't put it up there, and then I had calls. So, anyways, to get past that, I'm just going to talk about Gen Con a little bit this episode, and then I'm going to answer a whole bunch of calls, and uh, hopefully I can get more consistent with this again. So the reason why I'm going to talk about Gen Con, even though I said that I wanted to keep my podcast focused on OD&D with Chainmail, is because I ran od with Chainmail. Two sessions, actually. So I did it a couple of different ways. So I've made a modification, which I really haven't talked about. This is really just a house rule. When I'm trying to, because I wanted to run, because um, I already put the game up. And, and I didn't say with Chainmail on one of them, so I wanted to run it with the alternate combat system. I just thought it would be easier. Um, so what I did was I thought, you know, the reason one of the things I really like about OD&D with Chainmail versus straight OD&D is that fighters are actually really powerful, you know, comparable to everybody else at fighting, of course. And I feel like you lose that with the alternate combat system. So I thought to myself, you know, one of the rules that's in AD&D, and it might be in Holmes too. I don't know, um, where the fighter gets multiple attacks against low hit dice creatures. I think it's in, in it's in uh, Delving Deeper. The, they can choose to basically, and when they attack, they they attack as level one or level zero or whatever people. So like you can, you're a six level fighter, you can make six attacks at uh, if you're fighting uh, things one hit die or less. But you fight as a one hit die monster creature when you do that. Um, or you can make one attack with your much superior attacking. Well, I ran one playtest of it, and the reality is that the difference between the 6th and 7th level fighter and the 1st level fighter is only, like, 4. It's, like, a terribly small amount. So, of course, everybody just went for the multiple attacks. There was no reason to, which was cool. It still made fighters pretty awesome. But so what I did at Gen Con was I switched it, and I actually went and used the monster matrix for the fighters. So then it really became a decision. Like, you might need, like, a... Eight to hit versus a 14 and now now that's a bigger difference it's still most people in the game ended up doing multiple attacks it made fighters uh, devastating which is cool um, but i ran uh charak's tomb which is a uh, janelle jacques uh, module one of the first printed uh adventures and it, it was really fun uh, it was fun to get a group in we gave a bunch of henchmen uh, it was fun to people to see how the game was, I guess, because I don't think a lot of them really played it, uh, AOD&D, at all. And definitely not these older uh, adventures that are really wacky and really deadly and really bizarre. Um, so I recommend to Tomb. It's really fun. You can get it as part of the, um, there's like a compilation, Judge's Guild's compilation. I actually had the printed thing. I don't, I, I'm not sure what's going on with Judge's Guild now, if you want to give them money or not. I, I can totally understand why you wouldn't want to. Um, but anyways, it, it came from that. My second game, though, was a game I wrote myself. Uh, and this was my favorite. This was the highlight of Gen Con for me. Um, it was called uh, Goblin's Gate. And effectively, I had watched... Okay, now I'm not going to think what the name of it was. Well, one of these fantasy TV shows that's based on a book. And it kind of ended where there was, like, this battle where, like, they were holding this gate. And I thought, well, that's a kind of a cool uh, idea. So I thought, we'll give them... The concept of the, the game was... You, the, the party is there, they've got 100 soldiers on horses, um, but they're not going to be able, able to hold back the 5,000 enemy troops that are coming through. But there's an artifact below the building that will help them do it. So, the first part of the adventure is the party delving into these tombs that have been corrupted by evil. And for this, I ran ODD with chainmail. So, I used my system I've been talking about. The only change I made was that for fantasy combat, I did it kind of the way Chainmail actually does it, which is one hit is down. And I just gave them the option. I said, if you're fighting this, you know, uh, Spectre or whatever they're fighting, um, if you want to use a fantasy combat, you can, but it's going to use it against you as well, and which means you can go down and one hit. So some of them chose to use it, some didn't. Um, but that went really well. But the, what, the reason why this was the highlight was because the first... Like, two hours of it, we delved through the dungeon using OD&D with chain mail, which worked great. New people had never used it before, picked it up really easy, which was a good sign for me, because, again, I've been playing with people who I'm kind of hand-holding, because they're my home groups. There's people I just met, never played any of this before. Then we took a break, and when we came back, we did the battle of the Goblin's Gate. I had uh, not quite 5,000 troops, because I had the um, the numbers based on how long they took to get the the artifact, and effectively, the artifact allowed them to produce four elementals, and I gave each of the, the four of the players an elemental to control, and I gave the two other players each fifty horsemen in groups of twenty-five, so two stands of twenty-five medium horse with it with bows and, and you know medium horse uh, fighting stuff, swords I guess, and they went against you know these hordes like I think I had twelve or fifteen hundred orcs. I mean, broken up into groups of three hundred. I had I had nine hundred goblins in one group. And then I had some ogres in, in formations, and I had giants, and I had a wizard. <laughs> it was it was pretty wild. And again, nobody had ever played. Oh, so anyways, I, I did it in the regular game floor. I used two-millimeter miniatures. I think I talked about this before. I was printing them, uh, painting them, rather. And it was just really fun. If you've never used two-millimeter before, they're a little bit weird when you get them because you're like, I don't understand how this is going to look like anything. But once you put them on little stands, you give them a little bit of paint, you know from a distance when you're standing you know three four five feet away from it it does look like you're looking down from the top of a mountain at a bunch of soldiers fighting and what I did for the giants is I got six millimeter miniatures I got an ogres and orcs and I used the ogre the six millimeter ogres as giants which obviously to scale they were way too big but it was fine and I used the six millimeter orcs as ogres so it was really really fun in any case, that, those games were great. I also ran Top Secret, original Top Secret, from uh, 1980, and that we ran Lady in Distress, which was a tournament module. I had two two players for that. It was really, really fun. I forgot how much I love Top Secret, and I'll probably, if you follow me on YouTube, especially on the Actual Play channel, I think I'm going to start to run a little bit of Top Secret. So um, if you're interested in that, you know, let me know Let me know your history with Top Secret and stories and stuff. But yeah, there wasn't a whole lot to say. I guess I, maybe I said it really fast because I'm drinking coffee. But I think that... Uh, It made me feel really good to know that... Oh, and I'm going to say something here that's going to sound a little bit like I'm throwing shit. I'm going to say it anyways. So I picked up... I've been getting into miniatures, you know, as I've probably been talking about on other platforms. And I started looking at a lot of the rule sets for them just because I was buying miniatures, so I was getting their rule sets. And I got to say, I think I've done a pretty darn good job with my Unchained. I, I keep looking at it and going... I don't know if people would understand this. I'm not sure, if, but compared to the, a lot of the rule sets I looked at, it's it's pretty easy to understand. So you're going to see a lot of progress on that soon. Because I think that gave me a good uh, a good puff up, made me feel good that I actually been in a system that is uh, functional. And also, I've been inspired by Jason over at Nerds RPG Variety Cast because he's uh, doing play by posts to maybe even see if I can get a play by post game going with that, because that might work really well since that game is primarily narrative with just some combat. So. Well, we'll see. There, there's different uh, options here um, to what I can do, but I will try to be back steady now because I've got a few different things to report as well. I got uh, We're still playing OD&D with Chainmail uh, in person, and we took a bunch of weeks off because of Gen Con and everything else, but I'll get back into that and talk about any rules changes and how magic items and stuff have been affecting the game because it's been really, really fun. In any case, uh, let's get to the calls, and uh, yeah, let's see what everybody's got to say.
1: Hey, Daniel. Direct's on here. I think we should get rid of all of the stats, Uh, just use level. Uh, If you really want to uh, change progression based on your class, uh, include that all in the classes. Um, The saving throws already increase at different rates for classes, Um, and so do the to hit bonuses. Uh, I think uh, very little should be very little or nothing should be determined by a random chance in the beginning of the game with the die rolls, just get rid of it. Use level.
0: That's definitely an interesting thought. And again, if you look at original dungeons and dragons, just the three little Brown books, your stats don't do much except help you determine kind of what role you want to be, what class you want to be right They They're kind of like a guide for role play. I mean, some of them do a little bit like a bonus to, ranged weapons for dexterity or hit points for constitution or followers for charisma. But three of the stats do very, well, I guess intelligence gives you um, languages. So I guess, I don't know, I like the idea of using levels, but how would you handle things like languages in those cases, I guess? Just let people speak what they want, not worry about it, Um, have that be a random rule. It's interesting, and for sure, I think you could pretty easily run a game. In fact, my Unchained... Basically, the, the Unchained Heroes, the more basic hack, doesn't have stats, and so far it really hasn't been an issue. If you describe your character as strong and muscular, well, then you're strong and muscular. You don't need to roll.
1: Glad you're getting into wargaming. That sounds pretty fun. Having miniatures that small seems like they might be easy to lose. Uh, I don't know. A 2 millimeter, 3 millimeter. If I sneeze, will they blow off the table? I don't know. Um I have been recently very interested in uh using chainmail to kind of resolve more uh <clears throat> uh larger scale combats like uh, you know, a hundred orcs that you encounter uh, you know, in a, a forest hex crawl uh uh with O D and D. But um you know, the rules that I've looked up, like it just looks like so many um intricacies uh using the chainmail rules and i'm really excited to see how you kind of integrate them and maybe make them easier to digest
0: yeah the two millimeter miniatures are really small what you end up doing is you end up putting like on a one inch or 25 millimeter or whatever size it is uh base you end up putting like 20 or 25 miniatures so you're, you're building like the idea is that if you've never seen them before, they're really fascinating. When you're when you're looking at them up close, they just look like little blobs of metal or in color when they're painted. But when you kind of back up and look down at the uh, the table, you it really looks like there's a war, like a war going on that you're looking at from the top of a mountain. <laughs> so it's really super fun. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of stuff in chainmail that just if you're not used to wargaming, I've read through the book a bunch of times. The first time, extracting stuff for my OD and D rules. And most of what's in chain mail, you can kind of jump over once you understand the basics. I I did do a video. I don't know if you caught it a little while back. I think I call it like making combat exciting or something. It's like maybe a month ago. And I kind of distill the, uh, the morale rules into that. So if you use that and you use the the, what I call the troop combat or the, the the main combat system of Chainmail, that's pretty easy to do a large-scale battle without using every single rule, like the flanking and all of this stuff. Uh, it's pretty simple. You're just rolling X number of you know dice based on how many soldiers you have against X number of dice based on their armor. And you're dealing with morale at the end. Because I think without the morale, it becomes a bit of a... Everybody fights to the death, which was cool and we'd usually do that when we're playing but it can be fun to like charge into the orcs the first round do a massive amount of damage and then have you know 75 of the orcs run off you know being chased away by your five high level pcs so that that could be really cool as well so yeah check out that video if i can put i'll try to find a link i doubt i will remember to put it in the show notes i'm terrible at show notes but it's on the bandscape youtube channel it's not that it might have been three weeks ago as we're speaking so middle of june And uh, there's a breakdown of the morale system there. And I think that's what I would use. And of course, initiative is pretty simple. It's right up front. So a lot of the little stuff, like doing man-to-man combat when somebody falls off a horse and the horse also can fight and those kind of things uh, are a little bit wonky, you know, when you're not used to it. But I think that you can skip a lot of it, I guess is my main advice there. If you're going to run mostly OD&D and then just use the chain mill rules for the mass combats, I would just stick with the I don't know if it's called troop combat or if that's just what I call it, but the standard combat, the armored foot, heavy foot, light foot, that stuff, and you're just rolling six-sided dice. I would just use that and hit dice effectively instead of hit points and add those morale rules in, and you've got about 80% of the useful stuff from Chainmail there. Of course, now after I recorded that, it occurs to me that this might be actually a good video to kind of go over the parts of chainmail to insert into your OD&D or even like a BX or probably even a first edition game to kind of do the mass combat by just taking chunks of chainmail and not worrying about too many details. There may be a video about that by the time this comes out. There may not be. It depends on when this podcast comes out and how quickly I can make such a video but I think yeah I'm gonna put that in my list of things to do.
1: Thanks for recommending all these great podcasts by the way. Uh, I hadn't heard of a lot of the stuff that you Uh, have recommended Uh, and I actually went to go check out the Red Caps podcast after I listened to one of your older episodes and I wound up listening to their entire catalog uh, and I was very happy and now I'm very sad because I haven't posted content in months uh, and I would love to hear more from them Uh, but yeah just wanted to let you know
0: Oh, yes. I really, really enjoy Red Caps. I'm not sure. Maybe there are a bit of a, a break. But, you know, this happens oftentimes with these Anchor podcasts. People will put out a bunch of content and then they kind of step away for six months and then come back. So let's hope Redcaps comes back when they have time. But I think mean, that's one of the great things about the Anchor community is there's so many podcasts that are interacting with each other that, yeah, that's literally how I find most of my podcasts now. Is I listen to something like Nerds RPG Variety Cast and somebody will call in. And I'll say, well, I haven't listened to their podcast yet, and I'll jump over there. So, (laughs) yes, Anchor's great for that. And, uh, yeah, I will keep uh, mentioning podcasts I listen to here. And if you haven't checked out Nerds RPG Variety Cast, I definitely would check that out, because that does seem to be a major hub of the Anchorverse.
2: Hey, Daniel, Jason here. I'm way behind in my podcast listening, but I'm calling in on your design, the Game Before the Stats episode, and I've listened to the first half of that and totally agree with you. When I made a game for HIO contest years ago, what I did is I knew I wanted to have the ability for serious consequences for physical effort, for mental effort, like if you're in a vigorous debate that's going to wear you down, or for social slash you know, spiritual effort. And so, effectively, I went with those three for stats, physical, mental, and social, or spiritual, and each had a wound track, a corresponding – so, effectively, there are three stats and three hit point tracks or six stats, I guess, and one depleted, however you want to look at it. But the idea was that you could get worn down in any of those areas, and I designed that first before the stats. Or did I? It's kind of a chicken and – chicken-and-egg kind of thing, to be honest. Uh, I, I knew I wanted to have that ability because I like games, and, and I'm not saying any of that's new or unique to what I did. Other games already do it. The um, But the idea that I definitely wanted those separate wound tracks did... You know, I knew I wanted that mechanic so the stats reflect that I wanted the game to play that way, as opposed to, like, D&D, where you just have hit points and you don't have a way to really show psychic or um, social pressure or, you, you know, losing a, a vigorous debate. You, you know, how do you reflect that? Where, or intellectually you get worn down by whatever, where th- this kind of system allowed allowed for those things to happen. So, yeah, I, I guess it's a little bit of a chicken and egg kind of thing. But I, I guess I wanted those conflicts and then came up with a step.
0: Yeah, and you know, I think it's interesting because we can't get away from what we know, right? It's always like, try to forget what you know. So obviously when you go into something and you start thinking of a a skill that you want the character to have or a a thing that people will be doing in the game, one of the very first things you are going to think of is stats because that's just how we uh, are used to addressing things in many of these games. So I'm sure it is a little bit chicken and egg, but at the same time, you knew those were your three areas, so you didn't just sit down your game and go, well, I need you know six or eight stats so let me write them down then i'll figure out where they'll be used you came up with what you were trying to determine and then use those stats so I, I think you you kind of did what i was talking about and i think it's it's a good way to approach the game and not always one that that i've done when i've done hacks and stuff so yeah i think that that's it right look at what we're trying to do in the game and then create stats
3: around that hey daniel the pink phantom here i've also been watching the joy of wargaming channel and the campaign using chainmail. And I've just been fascinated with it. Uh, the that whole intersection between RPGs and war games and miniatures, war games, you know, where the where domain play meets miniature war game, where OD&D meets chainmail. That's that's just really been a fascinating topic for me, especially of late, but just all along. I like that seeing how that small scale meets the large scale, and how something a few you, you know it gives rise to that RPG trope of you know, a handful of individuals, capable individuals, maybe even lucky individuals, being able to make, you know, big seismic effects on a kingdom or a world. And I just love that you're going down that path, and I can't wait to see what else you, you dig up.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I guess the, the Gen Con game was proof of concept where you can really have both of those things at the table. I just think that what you need is the group of players that are willing to step away from their character a little bit, right? Because once we got to the wargame-y part, and when they were running Chainmail, it's not like that individual wizard was using their wand or a spell. They were just, they were control. well, I had them controlling an the elemental, so they couldn't do anything else. But, you know, th- at that level, the individual fighter wasn't fighting, right? They were controlling the, the troops. It becomes the player is still playing the game, but the character is put back. You know, unless you want to do what a lot of people suggest, which is another really fun way to do it, where you have, like, a little zoomed-in, like, side mission for the player characters. And then the war is happening around them, which is what I did in my Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer of Hyboria campaign. I used, instead of using miniatures, I used their war machine-type uh, calculator, and I just figured out what side I was going to win, how many losses there were going to be, how long it was going to take. And then we ran the thing with the adventure with the war going on around them. So there's definitely a lot of different ways to do it, but... Uh, uh, you'll definitely hear more because I've been tapping more and more into this skirmish uh, stuff and I got a bunch of rule sets in front of me that I'm poking at. So we'll see what we get.
4: Uh, hi, Daniel. Uh, this is uh, the Claw Claw Ren podcast calling in. I've been following your show for a while and uh, I took your advice and decided to make a podcast and uh, commenting on your talk about the usage dice. Uh, that was a mechanic. I, saw in, I want to say, uh, Forbidden Lands, and I didn't really like it. I, I like counting arrows and counting rations and things, but it did make me think I could maybe use it for um, spell research and uh, or any kind of research, or maybe even crafting. Uh, I primarily do uh, solo role-playing, so uh, it's just uh, something that I can use to emulate things for my own adventures, and I thought that the usage dice would be a good way to wind down, you know, keep random on uh, like breakthroughs in research or breakthroughs in crafting. I thought that would be uh... Uh, hi, Daniel. My message got cut off. Uh, the last thing I just wanted to add was uh, with the usage dice, it made me think of something. Um, I primarily uh, do uh, more of a three point uh, oh or 3.5 edition with some house rules. Um, Although you are making me think a little bit more about some OD&D stuff. But um, one idea I thought I I might want to try is there's an Unearthed Arcana for uh, Wounds and Vitality. Basically, I think your constitution is your wounds and then you roll your Vitality as hit points. And that kind of separates the whole, uh, did you get hit or didn't you? And uh, the Usage Dice with the random hit points, I thought maybe you could roll for them. Just the vitality in combat. So maybe that's a thought. So you, you weren't sure, okay, you got hit, now you roll whatever your hit die is. Um, yeah, just an idea.
0: Oh, those are both very interesting ideas for the usage die. Yeah, I think that um, sometimes, I guess I just don't like it for it. We had the arrow content, we've had this conversation, I guess, on, on Anchor many times, but not us. But that's awesome that you have a podcast. I'll check it out. But yeah, I, the idea of using it for research and crafting is super interesting, right? Because you could basically say, okay, well, this is a, a long project. Like making a potion is a D20 usage die. Or maybe a potion's is easier. So maybe a, D2, a D12. And then you're researching and when you get that one or two, you know, maybe you roll once a week, right? You know, when you get that one or two, you drop down to the next die. You drop down to the next die. That adds some randomization. You might get super lucky and get a breakthrough right away. But it might take longer because you roll badly or whatever. That's actually really interesting. I, I really like that. Um, I'm not sure crafting how that would work because um, I guess if you're trying to craft something that wasn't, hasn't been created before, then maybe that would be the I don't know. I mean, but that's also could be cool for that. But I definitely love the idea of using it for any kind of research or or creation of something that's that's new or different. Maybe the first time you craft a suit of armor, you got to do that. And then maybe the next time you start with a lower die or whatever, right? Because I guess you could have defects in the metal. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could be. I really like that idea. I'm not familiar with the 3.0, but but I what you're talking about. But I think I understand what you're saying, and yeah, that's pretty that's pretty interesting. So yeah, I think there's uses for it, Um, just not the way that I I think to always backtracking on things because I think part of my like uh, the reason why I stand on a hill to to defend the you know or fight against the usage die uh is because I think it just got too much hype as being like the end all be all of like the awesome mechanic much like inspiration and much like uh disadvantage advantage I, I think they're fine I just don't think that they are like oh man that changes the world and makes the game so much better. Uh but for me anyways but for some people. But I'll check out your podcast. Uh that's pretty cool. The next uh couple calls are from Blaine. I don't know what happened with their microphone. It was super quiet. So and really muffled. So I don't know if it was probably picking up from their headphones or not from the phone or whatever. Uh, but I did my best to amplify it so you guys can at least hear it. But just know it's kind of distorted. It's about a little less than two minutes, uh, and then I'll jump in and uh, hopefully <laughs> be able to answer it.
5: Hi, Daniel.
6: Uh, it's Blaine here, time listener, first time caller. Uh, so recommending the technology right. Uh Just with regard to the ability School discussion, it's interesting to. I mean, in the initial box, the ability still seem to only be for the player characters, um, because none of the other officers or anything seem to be assigned any, and then you only get dexterity to be assigned your homes, I think, for initiative, and intelligence and the range for um, uh, charm spells. but just the player characters have the stats, so it's almost like, rather than that being the range for a normal human, that might be just a range for the average adventuring type. So a 3 is a low for an adventurer doing that profession, and a part 18 is a high, but it doesn't actually stay where they fall in the general average of humanity. Part 2. Um, so yeah, so they're just the ability school could just represent the range within adventurers and then even narrow it down to just those specific tasks that they provide um, provide stats for. So it's called intelligence, I know there's a little more to say than you know, the ability of what plans can be carried out. But if you look at it, because the experience forms of magic uses and it dictates the number of languages that you use. So it's sort of much representative in this sense, magic users and various characters they have other people who did understand the magic or comprehend it better because it's been so awkward as this. So a character with three palities doesn't necessarily have to be lower palogit, just they're not very good playing with this they make a letter, but it doesn't stop the character being played as something with intelligence just from the language center.
0: Okay, so uh, if it was hard to make out, uh, what they're definitely what they're talking about is the idea that the only really player characters, at least in the older games, seem to have ability scores. Right. This is something that changed. I think I don't know where when it changed, but um, definitely in third edition. I don't know if it was in second edition, but the only ability scores monsters really generally have is, uh, and, and I don't Holmes, basically, they have dexterity because that's part of their initiative, right? And they some of them have intelligence, which is generally done in a range, right? Like uh, very smart animal, I don't know what they are, the intelligence ranges are, but so what they're suggesting is maybe the ability scores are really just a matter of kind of what they are, right? So that's a range for an explorer an adventurer. So if an adventurer with a three and an ability score, that's really bad for an adventurer, but they might still be better than your average person, which is a pretty reasonable, uh, statement. In fact, I often think it's funny that in some games they tell, say, all the, uh, NPCs, like if you do a normal human, a lot of times what people will do is just give them all like nines in their ability scores, right? So they're like, don't have any bonuses or penalties. But really, right, if the if your adventures are rolling, uh, probably a, a, a normal person, quote, for lack of a better word, is, should probably be more like a six or a seven, you know? But anyways, so what they're suggesting is maybe only use them for those things. So somebody with a three intelligence doesn't mean that they're not smart it just means maybe they're not great with languages because intelligence is related to a language and maybe uh, somebody with low uh i guess charisma well i don't know if you have a low charisma you have a low charisma but specifically that one i guess uh, would be one that you could do wisdom of course doesn't really affect anything except for clerics in, in od and in different uh some additions that adds or subtracts different things but right uh, a low wisdom doesn't mean that you're you're you know um easily tricked necessarily, it really depends on how you look at the rules. I, and when I'm talking about older editions where it doesn't really uh, explain what that is. I tend to think in OD&D of the ability scores is very narrative, uh, you know, because it does talk about like having a high strength being useful for opening traps, for instance, but it doesn't say how it affects it, <laughs> you know, so you just got to kind of like think, well, you know, somebody that's stronger is going to have a easier chance opening a trap door and you can, and you know, your range is 3 to 18, so you can just kind of think about it. It does create a situation where every table is not going to be the same, right? At my table, I might say, well, you know, you need at least a 9 strength move, to pull up a pull-up or a trapdoor by yourself. But another table might say 15. So, it, I, you know, I understand why they put more specifics into the later rule sets, but I don't disagree that you could just use the, uh, the ability scores as a measure of only what they grant you in the game and not anything else. You know, because you could look at strength as maybe your strength is also... Uh, You know your knowledge and weapons, and that's why it's a good skill for a fighter. I guess you know there's lots of different ways to look at it. So I I love calls that get me thinking.
5: Hey, Daniel, it's Kevin calling in from the Red Caps Podcast. Was just listening to your latest episode where you're talking about the itty bitty minis and playing them in the war game. Um, I highly recommend if you think you're going to enjoy this after you've painted your first few, either pick up because they're fairly cheap or see if there's one available in like a maker space in your area but one of the um resin th- resin 3D printers. I have one, it's amazing and you could make any mini uh of any size uh down to those little tiny miniature ones uh very easily. There's tons of free um STL files available online. There's one gentleman who I believe went through the entire 5e um monster manual and created a free STL for every single monster. But you could take all those, shrink them down to the tiny, tiny size that you'd like. And uh, they're very, very cool. So yeah, uh, resin 3D printer. Check it out.
0: Ah, uh, yes. The dreaded 3D printer. <laughs> no, believe it or not, believe it or not, uh, I have I've, I've eyeballed those resin printers. I, I got to do a little more research. I live in an area where we don't have um, like city sewer and city uh, water like I have a well, basically. So uh, I know that resin can be a little toxic, so I need to see what the procedure would be for handling that and getting rid of it uh, here to make sure it wouldn't be a problem. I know the other 3D printers, the ones that do the string are probably fine, but yeah, after looking at a bunch of resin printers, I'm with you, that was so cool. And that's awesome that there's somebody out there that went through and did the whole Monster Manual for 5e. That is an amazing project and, oh man, I could see myself printing monsters left and right. Okay, this might be a new hobby for me. So, yeah, thank you. And I'm glad to see you're back, too. So if people uh, have been missing the red caps, uh, they have started posting uh, some podcasts again. So jump over there and listen to their latest. Oh, I guess I should also point out that I've actually seen some stuff on YouTube where people have printed two millimeter stuff uh, on the resin printer. So obviously it's it's possible. I don't know that you'd use the giant files and and shrink them down, although that would be pretty epic. Um, I think what they do is they create very specific files for the, three, for the two millimeter. Because two millimeter, you know, miniatures are really just little kind of like shaped blocks. They don't really have a lot of details. So, and I think that's probably because of, it's probably hard to get that such detail on a small miniature. But that would be amazing to see like a really detailed miniature done in like two or three millimeter. <laughs> I mean, now I got to try this.
2: Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Just listen to your latest YouTube video about making the game your own thought it was a really good video I I, I guess so the way I look at the TSR products you, you know my favorite two of the TSR products are OD&D and AD&D you know first edition and I view OD&D is the one to hack and to make your own and I view AD&D is a challenge to run rules as written because the whole purpose of AD&D was that whole Convention play and Gygax trying to lock things down because originally OD&D was making your own then ad and play it our way, right? And well, which I know isn't totally 100% but it's under there somewhere, you know, because it's after they're like hey other people making money off this We need to grab it back for ourselves. So I like the challenge of running AD&D rules written, but I like the fun of hacking OD&D As far as successfully hacking Different games, yeah. Look at 5e. Look at ICRPG. ICRPG started as Hank and Fernell's house rules for 5e, and then it turned into its own system. So ICRPG is the poster child for the idea of make it your own, right? And I and I think it turned out to be a really great system. And the great thing about ICRPG is it keeps a DIY attitude, where you know you're encouraged to adjust it, modify it, and continue to make it your own. And it's not a lockdown thing. And, and I think Hank really is a great inspiration out there to try to keep people in that DIY mindset. So thank you for your video. I really appreciated it. And I look forward to talking to you
0: soon. So I think that's a really interesting point about the od versus ad and I, I think I think, you, know, you know, again, this is one of those things that gets repeated over and over again, just like Gygax hated magic users that I don't know that I'm fully buying into though. Because if you look at most of the, clunky stuff that I'm going to call clunky in AD&D that people avoid and don't run it. and that's the challenge right none of that stuff is something that would ever be something that would happen in a convention <laughs> so i don't see that but i do think it's it i think the idea is right though because i think it was he was trying to codify a rule set so that if you were playing in your home game using all these AD&D rules and then you came to a convention you would understand the rules they were using. It's not that you'd use all of them, and they were all there for conventions or all there for that idea. But the idea that everybody was playing with the same rule set was 100. Uh, I think uh, part of the motivation for AD&D to be AD&D. You know that that's my opinion. I don't really know, but again, that's just something that gets repeated. It's like if AD&D is for conventions, but I don't think that's. I know that's not what you said, but I, I think that's what you hear a lot. And I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. I think the idea of codifying stuff for conventions was part of it, yes. As far as ODD d being uh, hackable, 100%. I mean, I think it's uh, almost the most hackable system, at least in the DD world, that exists. I mean, you mentioned how Hank uh, hacked 5e for ICRPG, but he really stripped it, stripped it back. If you look at the, his other game there, 5e Hardcore Mode, which is actually a hack of 5e, I feel like that's not nearly as... Amazing as ICRPG. It's pretty cool. It's it's actually my preferred 5e (laughs) right now. Um, But uh, because he kept a lot of the rules, he just hacked it a bit, right? And I feel like 5e and 1e aren't the most hackable systems, unless you really, really strip them down, because there's so much there, right? You start removing things from something like 5th edition, and the balance is thrown off. A really thrown off. Even if you use some of the rules that are in the DMG, the optional rules for like long rests and stuff, it's like well, I'll make the game more hardcore. It also completely screws over spellcasters, especially certain kinds of spellcasters, which then throws off the balance of the game. So, I think that you got to be careful with the more complex the game is. So, I stand firmly with you in the idea that AD&D is not the game to hack per se, if you had a choice between that and OD&D, and I also stand firmly with you saying that Ankh's pretty amazing and that ICRPG is really the poster child for let's hack a system, which basically is the D20 system, and let's make a system that can be hacked and just make your own. I mean, there's so many different ways to play ICRPG. They've got cyberpunk, they've got cavemen that I've played, they've got obviously fantasy. I think it's a space version too, if I'm not mistaken. So there's lots and lots of stuff going on there, and I definitely recommend if somebody's listening to this and they've never played RP- IC RPG, it's definitely worth picking up. I think they have a simple version, maybe, but the latest version, the one I have that I got when he released it, was the uh, Master Edition. I think is what it's called. It's like a it's like it has a bunch of the settings and stuff, and you don't need all that. If you if there is a more simple system and you're just curious, I would pick up that first or watch tons of his videos because he talks about it. In any case, um, thanks, Jason. I appreciate... uh, And, of course, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I listen to you, I watch your videos all the time. Can I comment about your video here? Sure. (laughs) This is the perfect place to comment (laughs) because, I don't know, it's a podcast and it's chill, right? It's a good place to comment. In any case, I have now talked way too much and you are probably thinking, Daniel, do you have any more calls? And uh, the answer to that is no. I've caught up on all my calls. I will be releasing a... um, RPG a day video, not video, uh, audio podcast, this thing. I'm going to do a podcast here for RPG a day. I'm going to actually do two for the month of August instead of 31 or four or any other variation that other people are doing. I'm just doing the first 15 days, so I will have it released on the 15th, and then I'm going to do the second 15 days, and then I'll do a wrap-up one, I guess, on the 31st. So if you've got anything you'd like to add to this, you have a question for me, you have comments, you want to... Leave a message and have it be on the show. Go ahead and use the Anchor app while you still can. I guess with the Anchor Apocalypse, that might end, but you can always still do it on the web or reach out to me some other way and uh, leave me a message. Now I'm turning to Jason. I'm stealing
2: Jason's ending. Should I steal his entire ending? I think I'm going to be excellent to each other.